If what you know about the U.S.-Mexico border comes from political rhetoric or even news coverage, you might think the whole point of the border, at least for U.S. interests, is to hold unwanted immigrants at bay. If you actually live in a border community, you know that hold-the-line function is a thing, but that ultimately border communities on either side are not just largely peaceful neighbors, they are mutually dependent. From KERA in Dallas, this is Think. I'm Chris Boyd. Border communities are mutually dependent economically, but so are bordering countries. We somehow manage to overlook the fact that by dollar value of goods flowing between two countries, Mexico is just behind China as a U.S. trade partner. So we'd all do well to try to actually understand the border rather than buying into misinformation designed to distract us from the ways the border might unite rather than divide us. Geraldo Godava is professor of history and Latina and Latino studies at Northwestern University. His essay, The Border, appears as a chapter in the new book, Myth America. Historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. Geraldo, welcome to Think. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be here. You point out something here that is literally so obvious. We fail to notice it. We fail to debate it. Almost all of our immigration debates these days focus on the border and specifically the southern border. How does that shape the way Americans who don't have a lot of direct experience of the border think about this place? Well, I think that for every American learning about our current immigration debates and the border at all, by watching their local news or, um, you know, cable news shows. And if they're shown images of immigrants in mylar blankets huddled at the border trying to get across or being, you know, shoved into uh, border patrol vehicles, I mean, the only image they see of the border, the only stories they read of immigration and the border are uh, of undocumented immigration. And, And, you know, so why wouldn't they have any other view of the border besides the idea that all of our immigration woes take place along the U.S.-Mexico border, which of course obscures a much more complicated and I think rich picture. So let's get some historical background. These days we have a fixed border. It's a literal line in the sand in some places, but for a long time the space between Mexico and the United States was more like a fluid border land. What kinds of exchanges happened in and around that borderland? Oh boy, yeah. This is this is a this is a long history, of course, dating back to the mid nineteenth century. But it really is only in recent decades that the border has become the kind of militarized zone that we think of it as today. So, for much of the second half of the nineteenth century, I guess I should first just start with the basic fact that the U.S. Mexico border was drawn uh, in. 1848 at the end of the U.S.-Mexico War by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and it fixed to the border a particular latitudinal or longitudinal coordinates and particular um, natural uh, natural landscapes like the Rio Grande River, but there were no markers, really. I mean, there, there were stones that surveyors from the United States and Mexico placed along the border every so often, I mean, really maybe a mile or, or further apart. And then in the late 19th century, there were stone obelisks placed to kind of more formally demarcate the line. But there was no such thing as uh, barbed wire until the early 20th century or chain link fences until the mid 20th century. And the steel helicopter landing pads repurposed from the Vietnam War actually weren't placed along the border until the late 
1970s. And so that's the beginning, really, of our, our kind of militarized border era. And I think that's the kind of era we're living in today when we think of the border. So before the border was sort of defined as a place yeah. of immigration, documented and undocumented, people went back and forth. People, um, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. had family and friends there. People bought things and sold things. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. And that still shapes the reality of, of the border today. I mean, I love these stories from the late 19th century, for example, where there were saloons that literally straddled the border where, uh, you know, the, the time when bars had to close differed between <laughs> the United States and Mexico. So when it was time to close the bar in the United States, the uh, customers would just walk to the other side of the saloon and uh, continue drinking on the Mexican side of the border. But the growth of border cities really didn't happen until the railroads of the United States and Mexico connected at border cities in the 1880s. And that's when communities kind of started forming largely for the purposes of negotiating trade and uh, customs businesses and things like that. So I would say the, the origin of border cities and the origin of any kind of meaningful gathering along the uh, U.S.-Mexico line really had to do with bringing communities together to conduct trade and, and commerce. And so that still largely shapes the reality of U.S.-Mexico border communities. I mean, if you've been to any of them, you know that you've seen people waiting to cross the border from Mexico to the United States to shop at Walmarts on the U.S. side, to do grocery shopping on the U.S. side, to buy clothing on the U.S. side. You've seen uh, Mexican school children coming to the United States to go to school or uh, Mexican parents coming to the United States to go to work. So I think the commerce across the border that has nothing to do with undocumented immigration is still really a fact of life that gets obscured by the immigration debates today, but it's really been a constant across time. And just to make sure people understand this, I happen to be from a border city. I'm from El Paso. So um, it, it does, it works in both directions, right? There are also folks who live on the U.S. side of the border that go south of the border for work. Um, there are, you know, Americans living in El Paso who want to shop in Juarez. It is not only that people are coming up from the south into the United States. No, not at all. I mean, I think in recent years there, I mean, when I was a kid growing up in Tucson, Arizona, 60 miles north of the border, whenever we, you know, we would go to the border for an afternoon to go to a restaurant uh, or we would go, I have pictures still to this day of ridiculous tourist outings, like sitting on top of a donkey painted like a zebra, you know, these, these are the kinds of diversions. But in, in recent, in the re recent past, I mean, many Americans have Re, uh, settled in Mexico because of especially retirees because of a, a less expensive cost of living. They've also sought medical care south of the border because medical care in Mexico is as good and less expensive than what they can find in the United States, especially if you're on a fixed budget. So absolutely, the traffic goes in both directions. And that's just that's just a part of life. It's an accepted part of life if you live near the border. How did the Mexican Revolution begin to change the way the federal government of the United States enforced border boundaries and sort of patrolled that area? That's a great question. I mean, it had to do with a couple different things. One part of the story is the violence of the Mexican Revolution that the U.S. military was trying to prevent from spilling across. So this is when you see a lot of um, military forts built in border communities to, to literally try to... Um, you know, prevent the violence of the U.S.-Mexican revolution from spilling across. That was more and less effective. I mean, if you're from El Paso, you probably know these stories of 
hotels along the border selling tickets to people to go watch skirmishes uh, of the Mexican Revolution from hotel rooftops, and some act- some uh, some people who've paid for tickets to go watch the skirmishes getting hit by bullets. So it's not like the violence of the Mexican Revolution was entirely prevented from spilling across. If you're from that part of the world, you probably also know about Pancho Villa's 1916 raid in Columbus, New Mexico, mm-hmm. where his troops came across the border and killed uh, 18, 19 Americans and then fled back into Mexico, which also sparked a kind of manhunt for Pancho Villa by some 9,000, 10,000 American troops under the direction of um, General John Pershing. So it's not that the United States was entirely effective in stopping the violence of the Mexican Revolution from spilling across, but that did start to uh, lead to the increase of a militarized, a military presence along the U.S.-Mexico border. Another factor was um, this fear that Mexican revolutionaries would cross the border to steal American cattle to take back to Mexico to slaughter and provision their troops. And so it's when you start seeing the um, construction of a barbed wire fence uh, along the U.S.-Mexico to prevent that from happening. And then finally, the U.S.-Mexican Revolution era, the period between 1910 and 1920, was the period of the first mass Mexican immigration to the United States. And so uh, Mexico, during that one decade alone, lost 10 or 12 percent of its population uh, because Mexicans were heading north to the United States. And so even though Mexican immigration wouldn't be fiercely regulated for another 10 or 20 years, um, the Mexican Revolution period is when you start seeing the uh, mass immigration of Mexicans into the United States. Where did the good fences make good neighbors axiom come from? Oh, yeah. Well, it came from a, a poem by Robert Frost, actually, about called Good Neighbors. But I think, you know, the idea today as it's used, it's it's used largely by um, anti-immigrant think tanks like the Center for Immigration Studies, who argue that, in fact, in order to have working productive, efficient, respectful relationships, you actually need to clearly demarcate one side of the border from the other. I think, I think the thing that's probably appealing to uh, most Americans when they hear that kind of line is like, you know, we all live in homes demarcated by private property. And without the fences between our homes, it would be harder to know what's yours, what's mine. And, and we actually need the erection of a fence in order to, um, you know, have us live within our boundaries and respect each other's property. But I think, you know, that's, that's probably a useful analogy for the U.S.-Mexico border in some respects. I don't think anyone's actually talking about blurring the line between the United States and Mexico by removing the international boundary and kind of letting Mexico bleed into the United States and the United States bleed into Mexico. That's not what we're talking about. I think we're talking about just the idea that all of the things that um, Mexicans and Americans in the border region rely on to live kind of is established by their relationship with the other side of the border. Geraldo, there's a widespread perception, I think, in this country that people who cross borders to work in the United States represent a kind of drain on public resources. You note in your essay, this leaves out the extent to which we have always relied on migrants to keep the U.S. economy humming along. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in all sorts of ways that we take for granted from the food that we eat at every meal, from the clothes that we wear, 
every day and the electronic products that we, you know, live with constantly. Most of them, if not all of them, were produced by immigrants. And so I've always just thought it a little hypocritical to think that, oh, let's just close the border to all immigrants because they're undesirable. They drain the coffers of the United States. They do nothing but take advantage of our social and economic system while at the same time continuing to eat food, wear clothes, use electronics produced in large measure by migrants. Seems like you can't have it both ways. It would seem logical that the people best qualified to characterize the relative safety or hazard of living along the border would be people living along the border. Broadly speaking, do border residents think of themselves as facing more dangers than people living elsewhere in the United States? I think in general, broad brushstrokes, no, I don't. I mean, something I've been thinking a lot lately, too, is how, you know, Republicans, when I live in Chicago, I teach at Northwestern University, and all of the news nationally about Chicago has to do with shootings and violence. And I'm not saying at all that those are not real problems that need to be attended to, but I think anyone living in Chicago would tell you that it's a much richer, more complicated, interesting, and in many ways, good city than that. Yet Republicans nationally want to paint Chicago in a particular way. And I think there's a real analogy there. And I'm, you know, Chicago isn't unique in this respect. I think a lot of big cities probably face these um, perceptions outside of their boundaries. But I think in many ways, this is a good analogy for the border where, you know, the border in many ways is just a feature of a, a physical feature of a of a binational united city that people live with but in no way defines who they are and who their city is and so no i i, I don't think i mean you could point to statistics which find that border cities are no more dangerous and in many ways even less dangerous than a lot of other american cities as as one metric you could point to the fact that Um, undocumented immigrants are actually much less likely to commit serious crimes in the United States, in part because they don't want to be deported. They want to be able to stay here. They want to be able to work and go to school and raise families. So they're much less likely to uh, commit crimes than than other Americans who don't worry about um, about being deported, for example. So I think there are all sorts of ways that you can poke holes in the idea that border communities are dangerous, that the residents of border cities feel endangered. What I do think happens is I do think conservatives are very good at finding, even if they're unrepresentative, finding particular examples of ranchers, for example, who feel like undocumented immigration poses a real threat to their livelihood because immigrants cross their property cut barbed wire and their cattle roam free, uh, take baths in their water uh, supply tanks. And so then conservatives seize on those stories as representative of the whole uh, phenomenon of undocumented immigration in ways that are not representative. But I don't think that in fact, border communities are more dangerous or residents of border communities feel more endangered. So Look, in the modern world, there are borders set up to divide one country from the next. But 
before the current boundaries existed, indigenous mm-hmm. nations had settlements throughout areas that would later be divided into separate territories. This is true of the U.S. Ah. and Mexico and lots of other places as well. What effect does a border have on these folks and their ties to their brethren who land on one side or another, find it a different experience to be indigenous on one side or another? Hmm. Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I mean, it's a whole other layer to the story that rarely gets attention. But when the United States and Mexico, and this is an old story, I'll again have to go all the way back to the U.S.-Mexico War, but when the United States and Mexico established the coordinates of the U.S.-Mexico border, they didn't pay any attention to the Native communities that would be divided by it. And so for example, the Kickapoo or the Yaqui or the Tohono O'odham in Arizona, these were indigenous communities that for centuries had lived on both sides of the border and they moved freely on the territory to visit family members, to observe religious ceremonies. And the drawing of the border really affected their communities over time in a lot of ways. So uh, a lot of things I could point to in, in the modern era, like um, if you even look at aerial images of of the border, you would see agricultural development on one side of the border looking very different than another side of the border. Mexico didn't build schools on indigenous land very close to the border. So many Tohono O'odham, for example, who lived in Sonora had to go to the border and get bused to schools in the United States. The Cells Reservation in Arizona has a post office, but there is no post office on the Mexican side of the border. So many uh, Tohono O'odham living on the Sonoran side of the border had to get their mail in Arizona. But in terms of cultural divides, one thing that happens is that as the border, the U.S.-Mexico border divides indigenous nations on both sides, many of the indigenous communities north of the border start to speak English. Many of those on the south side of the border start to speak Spanish. And so over time, indigenous communities divided by the border really do um, feel less and less of a connection, not to mention the fact that over time it becomes harder and harder for these members of communities to cross the border because Tohono O'odham land has also been militarized. There are now new fences on indigenous land, which has always kind of prevented thorny legal issues. So I think Uh, In sum, the drawing of boundaries, the erection of fences and and other boundaries um, has really affected indigenous communities living on both sides. You also remind us here, the border that we have drawn bisects what is unquestionably a single environment, right? So people on both sides depend on shared water supplies. Wildlife has never paid any attention to national boundaries. How do dividing structures like walls and fences and even roads affect ecosystems? Hugely. I mean, it is true that animals, for example, birds flying across the U.S.-Mexico border, um, you know, have rarely paid attention to the international divide. They don't pay attention to the international divide, but it depends on this the species too. I mean, uh, some animals are endangered because of the presence of the border and because they're not able to kind of roam their traditional hunting territories freely. I think, you know, that's the animal kingdom. But then I think artists have also done a really great job of highlighting this, um, you know, contradiction about the border. There was a Chilean artist named Alfredo Yar, for example, who had a 
performance piece called Las Nubes, The Clouds, where he released thousands and thousands of white balloons, one for every migrant death over a certain period that just floated from the Mexican side of the border over to the US side of the border. And I think he did a really effective job of drawing our attention to all of the ways in which life, just nature uh, defies the international or the imposition of an international line. So Geraldo, um, there was concern throughout the 1930s that maybe Mexican workers were, you know, uh, helping the depression and, and hurting Americans by taking jobs that Americans wanted. There were those anxieties. But how did the official view on undocumented immigration across the southern border turn from something like an administrative or even economic problem to one that was framed, especially in this century, as like a critical national security threat? Wow, that's a, a big and good question. I mean, again, I think it it does change over time where it's, you know, now we are much more concerned about drug trafficking and the rise of Mexican cartels and the real threat that they pose to the Mexican nation state and how that violence can spill across the U.S.-Mexico border as well. I mean, I think that... Uh, you know, I think also as historians like Greg Grandin have written or even political theorists like Wendy Brown at Berkeley have written, she wrote just a wonderful book about how the U.S.-Mexico border itself was a kind of reflection of all of our national anxieties about national economic decline, the, the you know, change of um, American identity posed by immigration. And her argument is this interesting argument about how the the increasing militarization of the border becomes more pronounced at moments when the United States is, is states is feeling more vulnerable, more uh, threatened, and that's you know I think why anti-immigrant rhetoric had a really significant effect during the Great Depression when many Americans were feeling their livelihoods threatened. I think. The same thing was true in the 1970s. And so there's this, uh, you know, during the, the kind of global economic panic around uh, the shortage of oil supplies and stagflation, things like that. So there really is um, a, a kind of historical pattern of the greatest anxieties about the border being most pronounced at times of economic decline. And frankly, I think that's also why today in an era of deep economic anxiety, and fears of uh, public health fears related to the pandemic when many Americans are concerned about their health and well-being and uh, job security, when instead of feeling like this is a moment to do more to take care of vulnerable migrants, it's a moment to turn them away because we have our own concerns that we have to think about. And I think in these moments of of great personal and national insecurity. This is when fears of immigrants and fears of immigration get ramped up the most. So at least emotionally, I understand the anxieties people have economically, but I, I do want to talk yeah. about the amount of trade the United States and Mexico do with right. one another. What would happen to this country's economy if we didn't trade with Mexico? 
Well, I think things would become even more expensive than they are now. Um, and certain things, certain comforts that we have grown to grown used to, like, you know, the ability to eat oranges year round, even though uh, in farther north climes, oranges are unable to grow in the winter months. Uh, we wouldn't be able to eat all of the produce that we eat continuously now uh, year round if there were stricter, um, there were more restrictions on that kind of trade. So I think, I think different things would happen. I think the clothes that we wear, the goods that we buy, the homes that we buy, because, you know, undocumented construction workers, that's, that's a real thing as well. So pretty much everything we rely on to just live life would become more expensive and probably more scarce. I think that's like part of the trick, right? I mean, it's like drawing our attention to all of the dangers while not paying attention to any of the benefits we get from immigration. And I think that that's part of me, you know, I know that this sounds super cynical and ridiculous, but part of me wishes that we would just have an honest conversation about whether or not we even really care about immigrants or if we only care about their well-being insofar as it allows them to continue to pick our fruits and vegetables, make clothes for us, make our electronics. Geraldo, how important should we consider the distinction between documented and undocumented immigrants to this country? Uh, you are really asking the big hard ones, and, and, and why wouldn't you? This is a really important issue. I mean, it, we, it, there is an important distinction between documented and undocumented immigrants. I think, you know, it is fair to point out that as a sovereign nation, the United States has the right to craft immigration policies that are in its own interests and that do you know, establish bars for citizenship and belonging. Every country in the world does this, the United States should do it too. So that, that's an important starting point. But I think the question is, it also has to do with you know, what do you do with people who have given their lives to working in the United States, raising families in the United States? They have a lot of sweat equity here in the United States and in many ways think of themselves as nothing other than Americans. What are their rights to become citizens? So I don't, you know, I, I do think that you can distinguish between documented and undocumented immigrants. And I also think that you know, this is something that presidential administrations try to do by distinguishing between refugees and asylum seekers and undocumented immigrants, too. I think immigration law and how the United States tries to regulate who comes in and out of the country is extremely complicated and extremely important because it does have to do with, you know, opening our door doors to new populations and all of the the changes that they can bring and however you understand that term change. So I think it's a critically important subject, but I think it's important to pay attention to issues of fairness and hypocrisy, frankly. So again, just to, it's always so clear to me to think of examples like the clothes we wear on our backs and the uh, food we eat every day and the homes that we live in. I think it's important to remember that a lot of these comforts that we have would not be possible without immigrants 
And in part because of the cost, in part because of the labor that they're willing to do because they need the money for their families as well. I think it's important to pay attention to those issues. And I just think in our immigration debates and the way that the, the media has framed the issue by focusing on the border and the hordes of hundreds and thousands of immigrants pressing up against the border, we've overemphasized one half of that equation and underemphasized almost to the point of invisibility, the other half of that equation. So what do we do to grow and enhance the sort of value of beneficial exchanges that happen along the border and then the, the national recognition that, that this is not such a horrible place? These are such good questions. And it's, it's important. Somehow we're able to get away with this idea that undocumented immigration only poses a dangerous threat both to border communities and the United States at large. And I think by complicating that issue and showing the border to be so much more than that, you are not solving the problem of undocumented immigration. That's a global problem that requires a lot of time, energy, and creative thought to fix. But you will at least be broadening the conversation in a way I think that is more realistic to what actually happens in border communities and perhaps more um, sympathetic and empathetic with the people who live there. Geraldo Cadava is professor of history and Latina and Latino studies at Northwestern University. His essay, The Border, appears as a chapter in the book Myth America. Historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. Geraldo, this has been really interesting. Thanks very much for making time for us. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about a lot of these things, and these are great questions. Thank you so much. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. You can subscribe to our podcast, or you can listen to the podcast on our website, think.kera.org. Again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.